Welcome to Politics Pulse, where we get perspectives on politics, government, and current events from inside Washington and beyond. We're produced by WKXL, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. I'm Matt Robeson. Our guest today is veteran, experienced, legendary political writer and host of We Got Issues, really an outstanding politics podcast that I urge everyone to check out, Joshua Holland. How are you? I'm well, Matt. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm delighted. I've uh, gotten the chance to work with Joshua at Alternet, where he has helped to get many of my political ideas out into the firmament. And now I get to put him under the microscope and ask for his wisdom. I, I want to talk about <laughs> what's been going on in, 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 I guess, since the election. We've now reached a point where a significant segment of our country believes what our president is pitching uh, about a so-called rigged election. Now, it doesn't matter how much this is debunked. It doesn't matter how many Trump-appointed federal judges say that this is nothing, that they're actually shocked by the legal case here. The fact of the matter is that a majority of Republicans now believe this. So I guess my question is, just taking the long view, big picture, how bad is this? How dangerous is it for our country, does this begin to go away when Trump leaves the scene, or are we sort of sort of stuck with this situation where, in a democracy, a big portion of our country doesn't believe in our under my, uh, underlying democratic mechanism? Well, um, first of all, it's not clear to me that Trump is going to depart the scene. Um, it looks like he's establishing the Republican Party as a vehicle for his own personal grievances, for his animus, um, you know, to continue doing his thing as a kind of a president in exile. And uh, it looks very much like a large portion of the Republican Party is uh, willing to go that route. And uh, we'll see if he announces that he's running in 2024, as has been widely reported. Uh, I think that it's an extraordinarily dangerous time. And, you know, if you want to look at the core issue, it is that the stakes have become too high in the United States. Um, we not only, um, you know, have ideological differences, we've come to the point where we fear the other party winning power. And um, there's a big disparity there in terms of what our fears are based on. So if you are a, if you are a Republican right now and you get a, a lot of your information from Fox News and the rest of the conservative media, you're really fearful of, of specters that are um, frankly just divorced from reality, uh, Venezuela style socialism, you know, uh, the, the laundry list of attacks on, um, on Democrats coming from Trump during the, uh, during the campaign included, you know, they're, they're in favor of burning down cities, they want to get rid of police, they want, you know, abortions after uh, a baby is delivered. Uh, this is something that Trump has actually brought up. That's, that has, I, I don't know how it would work exactly, but that's been um, on, on Trump's laundry list of things. Uh, the, all of the, you know, weird stuff about abolishing the suburbs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you're a Democrat uh, or, a, or, or, you know, a liberal or, you know, a liberal independent, you are concerned about Republican assaults on healthcare, on public healthcare. Um, you know, the, the, these kind of power grabs that we've seen in state legislatures, uh, the 
the specter of minority rule. These are all real concerns. So, you know, it's it's a very dangerous time in uh, in our political history. And I, I would add that, you know, what we're going to see in the next four years is, is fairly clear at this point. The claims that Joe Biden is not a legitimate president um, are going to, you know, make it very, very difficult for uh, elected Republicans to do anything other than to mount a uh, full-fledged, you know, a resistance campaign against whatever they do, whatever, whatever Democrats attempt to do. And and uh, one point that I've made in the past is, is that this is kind of like a a different kind of birtherism, right? I mean. You know, there was a, a widespread belief on the right that Barack Obama was not a legitimate president. He was not qualified to be president. He was a crypto Kenyan socialist. And, you know, that's not a narrative that could be used on Joe Biden, who's been in Washington politics for 50 years, a white boy from Scranton. But, you know, we have this this new iteration, which is that he... Uh, he, st he stole the election. And, and it, it really is also a reflection of the, you know, the, uh, our media silos, right? So it's been interesting to see uh, how conservatives, having been told that, uh, you know, by the conservative media that boat parades and, you know, uh, truck flags on trucks and things like that are a better measure of the um, prospects of Trump's reelection than the polls, um, you know, the, the, they, they were primed to be shocked that 80, I think 81 million people voted against Donald Trump. Um, yeah, I mean, it really does raise the question, you know, as you say, that we've gotten to this dangerous point where there's this loathing hatred, and I, I agree with your word, fear, of the other side. Is there anything to be done here? Joe Biden seems to have a core belief that we can lower the temperature. Of course, Barack Obama had that belief too. It didn't pan out so well. You know, I had put forward with your help a an idea that maybe we could start to lance this boil of kind of, as, as you put it, this birtherism-esque conspiracy about the election by trying to reach some kind of a painful compromise with Senate Republicans on voting and elections reform. I knew that uh, progressives would absolutely hate it. One who I, uh, <laughs> who I respect a lot called it shamefully spineless stuff from me. But I, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, actually a, a beautiful was, turn of phrase. Was, was that me, Matt? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I want to ask you. That's what I want to ask you. You can be honest with me. I mean, I put it out there as an idea. Maybe we should try and do but. Is that idea or something else a, a kind of a, a practical, constructive approach, or is there really nothing to be done? Well, I mean, I, I think this is the $64,000 question. You know, short of another civil war, what can be done? I don't know what the answer is. For me, um, from my perspective, a lot of it comes down to the, the point that I just made about um, media siloing and the different realities that, that have emerged on the right and the left. You know, it's one thing to have differences of opinion and there's something else to not have a common set of facts. And that's really tearing this country apart. I don't know what the answer to that is. 
Um, part of it is uh, increased media literacy. I think that there's a disparity in terms of uh, investment in alternative media on the left and the right. The conservatives have invested tens of millions of dollars in this kind of uh, alternate information infrastructure. Um, big liberal donors tend not to uh, because they think that, um, you know, the, the so-called facts have a liberal bias. I don't know what the answer is. I really don't. I, I, I think that we're you know, in a very in a very bad place in in this in this country's history. Um, I I I you know I share your I share your desire to uh, lower the uh, the temperature through you know some sort of creative deal making, but having you know having reported through the Obama years. Um, I'm, I'm not hopeful. And, you know, when it comes to your specific proposals about striking some sort of deal around voting, uh, you know, for me, the, uh, from my perspective, the Republican, you know, the, the core issue here is that Republicans have embraced the idea that uh, demographic headwinds are insurmountable for them. And that if they, that they're not able to compete uh, with uh, with a, a a more diverse American electorate, they need to um, f figure out ways to in entrench their power uh, free from democratic accountability, small democrat, small d democratic accountability, and you know the specter of voter fraud. You know, voter fraud is it. It's been demonstrated eight ways to Sunday that. Voter, in person voter fraud, especially, is uh, almost non-existent. You know, we have um, half a dozen cases every uh, year of actual voter fraud are detected. They're always pretty easy to detect. It's hard to get away with it. There isn't much uh, logic to voter fraud because, you know, you you can vote twice or three times, and that's a very very small. Uh, addition to the pool of votes, but you risk going to jail. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. And, you know, these, um, you know, the, the, the specter of voter fraud has been a tool that Republicans have used to uh, justify policies which suppress the vote. And uh, there was a study out of the University of uh, California in San Diego, a couple of years ago, they found that strict voter ID laws uh, depress Republican turnout by 3.6% and uh, Democratic turnout by 8.5%. So that, that five percentage points in the middle is a powerful incentive not to make such a deal. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird, you know, coming out of this election where Republicans hit practically a high watermark, at least in recent history, with non-white voters, um, you know, surprisingly, um, you know, they did well. I mean, it was exit poll data, right? So take it with a giant mountain of salt, but like yes. they got they got 35% of the Muslim vote, um, you know, and, and did very well with Latinos, which, you know, there's been a lot of good post-election reporting that that's really not the most accurate blanket term to describe um, a very diverse uh, segment of America. But um, you know, so you would think that maybe they, they would begin to see less vested interest in um, that kind of a differential 
in uh, voter turnout. But well, let me ask you, let me ask you this. Let me ask you about another. You, you invoked the idea of short of a civil war earlier. Um, speaking of a civil war and a true civil war, um, you know, we, we've seen in recent weeks little dust ups. I mean, nothing, nothing too major between the left and the center of the Democratic Party, a little bit of back and forth between AOC and Abigail Spanberger and, yes. you know, folks like that. You know, I'm not asking you to, to kind of look into a crystal ball here, but do you see that kind of rift widening, especially without Trump kind of fulfilling the function, like, like the rug in the Big Lebowski, it sort of tied the whole room together? You know, like, I mean, without sort of force Democrats all yeah. to be on the same side, um, do, do you see that problem blowing, blowing a little bit wider? Well, um, let me get out my crystal ball here. I, I think that the, the scope of the problems that Democrats are inheriting may blunt those divisions a little bit. And, and, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. If Democrats were coming into power during a normal time with a relatively humming economy, uh, not a, a pandemic burning through the population, you know, there, there would be a significant rift in the scope of policies. That, that, that is to say, um, we would have, I think, a certain amount of deficit hawkery uh, from, from the center of the party. You'd have a push to spend big and solve major problems from the left and expand healthcare and I don't, I don't know that. So, so you've got two, two separate things that may blunt those normal kind of ideological divides. One is that I don't think that they can approach intertwined catastrophes with a um, tinkering around the edges, you know, uh, kind of agenda. And, and all, all of the indications are that while Biden is institutionally and constitutionally a centrist, he sees this this presidency as a uh, as a as he sees this time and the challenges that are inherent in this time as something that calls for uh, going big. And so you have the left that wants to go big, and increasingly, I think those arguments are going to be won by the left, not, not on specific policies maybe, but just in terms of the, the scale of the, um, the, of the programs that they pursue, the agenda that they pursue um, is gonna have to be, uh, it's gonna have to match the, the scale of the catastrophes that they're trying to address. The other thing is that you know, even if they sweep the two Senate seats in Georgia, which is a very, very tall order, you're going to have uh, either a Republican controlled Senate or a 50-50 Senate without enough votes to get rid of the filibuster. And that is gonna be a constraint um, that calls for really, I think, aggressive executive action. I think that there's widespread recognition that there's not that much that is going to be um, possible after we deal with 
you know, coronavirus relief and, and certain things uh, that, that have to pass, I think most people agree have to pass, um, there's going to be a limit in terms of what the legislative agenda is and a lot of focus on, um, you know, executive action and then what can be extracted um, with various fiscal cliffs and much pass, you know, must pass spending bills and the like, which is what we saw under the Obama years. One difference that we're seeing in terms of, I think, some of the staff decisions, some of the staff choices that Biden has made is that there is um, there seems to be a, a lot of people in in the new administration who are pretty clear eyed about uh, the prospects of making deals with Republicans in the Senate and. Um, We'll see. And then getting back to your original question, I, I also think that it's important to distinguish between real policy differences, real strategic differences, and then the kind of noise that, you know, those of us who are on political Twitter see. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of these divides between the progressive left and the center are personal and tribal and go back to grievances stemming from the 2016 election, all of that is not going to go away. And it's also not terribly important. Most people are not on Twitter. Most people are not following those conflicts. And um, they don't really impact people's lives. So I think it's always important to distinguish between um, those two stripes of uh, intra-coalition conflict. Right. Twitter is not real life. I, you know, and one of the things that's been big on Twitter is this, you know, back and forth where one faction is saying, well, you know, you guys on the left really killed us in swing seats with some of the BLM and, and Green New Deal and, and leaning into being socialists. And that that's that's sort of the culprit here. And the response has been well, not really, and you guys don't know how to run effective campaigns and your social media is all right. Do, do you make anything out of that? Is that, is that, as you say, just a bunch of noise or is there, is there anything to the contention that maybe the rhetoric needs to be a little bit more fine-tuned as some of uh, the ferment on the, on the left side of the party matures a little bit into sort of viable and practical political steps? Huh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna split the difference here. Uh, let me first say that I um, I question the premise upon which that conflict is based. We have these two kind of narratives, and and it's interesting to me that that they are, in a way, um, conflicting narratives. So we know that the polling was off, and we know that it was especially off on the district level. District level polling was a disaster. It was completely wrong. And um, we're also hearing that Democrats underperformed down ballot in state legislative races and house races. But that's based on the expectations that were set by that polling that was wrong. So, I, you know, for me, I'm not sure that Democrats underperformed against an incumbent president in a race against an incumbent president um, during a, you know, a, a, a major national crisis. Um, 
a president who had good marks on the economy going into the uh, pandemic. And in the context of their extremely um, impressive 2018 midterm results, right? In 2018, Democrats netted 40 House seats, 300, I believe the number was 319 state legislative seats. And a lot of those were in purplish, you know, highly competitive, difficult to hold districts. So you had a lot of, a lot of freshman representatives in um, very, very competitive uh, seats and Trump inspired massive turnout on both sides. We know that a lot of people, a lot of Republicans found Trump offensive and didn't find the same of their Republican uh, candidates down ballot. So, you know, one of the things that I find frustrating is that the, the, the people who faced attacks over defunding the police, none of them favored that policy. So I, for me, there's a, the, the core problem is conservative disinformation. And to the extent that they were able to use defunding the police as uh, fodder. It was effective, but you know, I've I've seen uh, everybody from Bill Clinton to uh, Joe Biden be accused by the right of being a socialist. Now, I think that for me, I'd like to see Democrats worry less about um, you know how the other side weaponizes these issues and more on how to um, pivot and bring those back to areas where they're comfortable on, on uh, you know, where they're on, on their ground. And um, if you cower before the, the, the disinformation, I don't think that that helps the left and I don't think it helps the center and I don't think it helps liberals in between. That's really sage advice. And I guess we're gonna have to leave it there. Joshua Holland, thank you so much for joining us and for parting all your wisdom. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I appreciate that.